Um, yes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Psalm 19, uh, 7 through 11. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of the Lord is in his heart. His steps do not slip. That's Psalm 37, 30, and 31. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The Psalm 40, verse 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, 1. And there are actually a lot of other places in Psalm 119 that I could add. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Proverbs 28, 4. And there are a few other places in Proverbs 28 that could be added to this. So are these things still true for us today? Should we still be able to affirm these? And I hope to demonstrate in this series that the answer to that question is yes. So how about this one? The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. That's Isaiah 24, verse 5. Is that speaking only of Israelites under the Mosaic covenant, or is it speaking of people all over the earth? And was it only true back then, or is it still true today? So different Christian traditions have developed a wide variety of schools of thought concerning the laws that we read about in the books of Moses. Some people view them as mere artifacts of the Old Covenant, and where those laws do agree with the moral teachings in the New Testament, they act like these are just incidental similarities. And that's a logically indefensible position, as we'll see as we go on. Others on the opposite end of the spectrum view the entire law of Moses in all of its particulars as a moral standard binding on everyone and every nation at all times throughout the earth. And indeed, many people both inside and outside the Christian faith believe that these are the only two options we have. There are some passages of scripture that would seem to lend themselves to this idea. For example, in Matthew five seventeen to 20, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So from these words of Jesus, it seems apparent that we have two options. Either the law of Moses is still fully in force or else it's been fulfilled and therefore has nothing to teach us as far as our manner of life is concerned. And this creates some difficulty for us as there are many commands in the law of Moses which we don't observe, at least as far as the details about what they command and forbid. So some of you know that one of my favorite foods is pork ribs. 
Uh, also, last week, as a church, we had a crawfish boil. Under the Mosaic Law, we wouldn't be able to eat these kinds of things. And so why do we say that it's okay now? Hopefully, our reason for this is not that we don't like what they command or that we desire what they forbid. Rather, hopefully, it's because we recognize that the Mosaic Law contained many laws which were given to serve the purposes of that covenant, and so they're not applicable outside the boundaries of that specific covenant. And hopefully we recognize this because it's what the Bible teaches, uh, both within the law itself, but most clearly in the New Testament. So we see it in the law itself, both in that the law explicitly excuses or even prohibits Gentiles from certain commandments, and that in some commandments of the law, they are just so bound to the administration of the Mosaic Covenant that it would not be possible for those outside that covenantal context to observe them. We'll look at some of those in a later lesson. In the New Testament, there are many passages in which we are told that we're not to be bound or to bind others to commands in the law. Examples of this we find in Acts 15, Galatians 5, Ephesians 2.15, Colossians 2.14 and 16, and Hebrews 9.8 through 10. Then in other places, we see commands of the law cited by New Testament authors who apply them in ways that don't seem to match up to the plain, literal Old Testament applications of them. Examples would be 1 Corinthians 5.13 and 1 Corinthians 9.8-10. At the same time, we need to understand that the moral precepts of right and wrong have always applied to every human being who's ever lived, And since these are based on God's own unchanging character and our relationship to him as his creatures and image bearers, they've always been the same. Since that's the case, we should see that this popular notion that only those laws which are commanded in the New Testament scriptures should be used used by us for moral guidance really doesn't make sense. And we see many places in the New Testament where commandments of the law are cited directly as teaching moral principles. Statements of right and wrong. Examples are Matthew 4, 7 and 10, Matthew 19, 18 and 19, Matthew 22, 37 and 39, Romans 7, 7, Romans 13, 9, Ephesians 6, 2, and 1 Peter 1, 16. And besides these, we see many places in the New Testament which, while not directly citing Old Testament scripture, do indicate that the author regarded certain things as right or wrong, which the law of Moses also identified as right or wrong, respectively. Examples are in Matthew 15, 19, Acts 15, 20, Romans 1, 18 to 32, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, and then 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Colossians 3, 5, 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, and Revelation 21, 8. So in light of what we see in these passages I've just mentioned, as well as what we read from or what we read from the uh, words of Jesus previously from Matthew 5, what should we say regarding how the precepts taught in the law of Moses relate to us in the new covenant and to the human race broadly? So my aim in this series is to help us understand from scripture what we as a church that confesses the Second London Baptist Confession believe about how we who are under grace and not under the law are to learn from the law and apply its teaching to our lives. 
So as a church, we've adopted the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 as our own statement of faith. And most of us probably say that we agree with what it says, at least for the most part. But we need to be able to understand from the Bible why it says what it says. And we need to be able to explain it to others from Scripture. Remember, our confession has no authority of its own. Its authority is derived from its agreement with what the Bible says. And so it's necessary that we understand how the Bible teaches what the confession teaches. And besides that, being able to understand and articulate the biblical basis of our confessional understanding of the law is especially important in gospel witness and apologetics. So how many of you have seen videos of someone like Ray Comfort talking to unbelievers and seeing how he goes through the Ten Commandments to show them how they fall short of full obedience to God's law in order to convince them of their need for a Savior. Maybe you've done this yourself. And and, uh, this approach reflects an underlying belief that the Ten Commandments do, in fact, present God's law in a way uh, as to define what sin is and to convince a person that he is a sinner. So is this underlying belief true? And I hope in this series to prove that it is. Um, How many of you have been accused or have heard Christians in general being accused of picking and choosing from among the laws found in the Bible? Many adversaries of the faith assume that we do this arbitrarily, and they say that the only honest choice is between being bound to all of it or to none of it, like I mentioned earlier. It's not enough for us to point to our confession and say that there are different types of laws and that we're only uh, bound to obey certain categories. Again, our confession is a summary statement of what we believe, but it's not the actual authority or the source of our knowledge about these things. We need to be able to prove them from Scripture. So let's then read chapter 19 of our confession and consider what it says. You should have gotten it as one of your handouts. I have the original text on one side and a modern version, which I got from the Founders website, on the other side. We're going to read the original text, but I did include the modern version just in case it might be helpful to you. Uh, You should note also that chapter 19 of our confession is copied with very little change from chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession. And so our confessional Presbyterian friends should be able to agree with everything that we're saying here today as well. So I'm going to read the original text of the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 19 of the Law of God. It says, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables, the the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. Besides this law commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, 
all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of modern use. The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show uh, what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unallayed rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the laws of covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other. It's no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Give me a second. All right. So we see in the first paragraph an affirmation that as well as the positive commandment regarding the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart. This law of universal obedience is what we call the moral law. The fact that it's not merely spoken to him or even written down on tablets of stone, but actually written in his heart and in everyone's heart after him, as it says, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, means that it is not only moral law, but also natural law. And so the first distinction that we need to make among laws is the twofold distinction between natural and positive laws. So natural laws are those unchangeable laws which are grounded directly in who God is and who we are as God's creatures and image bearers and which are revealed to us by the natural means which we call the conscience. They define what things are right and wrong for us to do, and so they are eternally binding upon us. Positive laws are laws which are given for specific purposes at the discretion of a lawgiver, and they may be repealed by the lawgiver when he feels that they're no longer needed. In our day, the existence of natural moral law, or even a universal uh, standard of morality, as it's often called, is commonly challenged. 
a lot of even conservative Christians implicitly relegate the moral law to the category of positive law by teaching that Jesus gave new moral laws to replace the Mosaic law entirely, including its moral judgments. And this is a teaching known as supersessionism. If this is true, it means that all laws established by God can be and have been thrown out and replaced by God at some point. Therefore, that would mean that there's no natural moral law. Now, let's be clear, the Bible does not teach this supersessionist doctrine. Paragraph 2 goes on to affirm that even though this law had been broken at the fall, it remained a perfect rule of righteousness. As well as that, it affirms that the Ten Commandments contain in summary form that moral law and that it is divided into two tables, the first four containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty towards man. Now, the confession gives us its proof for the two tables, uh, Deuteronomy 10.4. Now, as a side note, in verse 3 of that chapter, we're told that the commandments were written on two tablets of stone. And if you look at most representations of the Ten Commandments, you see the commandments split across the two tablets. If you were here when Hal was preaching his sermon series on the Ten Commandments, you might remember him explaining that the two tables, or rather the two tablets, probably contain two complete copies of the Ten Commandments. Nevertheless, this division of the Ten Commandments into the two parts, uh, one dealing with our obligation to God and the other dealing with our obligation to man, is definitely taught in Scripture. So we see this in both Matthew 22, 34 to 40, and in Mark 12, 28 to 33. We have the account of Jesus being asked, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he replies there that the greatest is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So it's very important that we realize that both of these commandments that he gave here are actually quoted from the Mosaic law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might is Deuteronomy 6, 5. Most of us know that one. Hal read it multiple times during his series on the Ten Commandments. And I'm also pretty sure that it's been a Bible drill verse for our children or youth in various years. The next one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is from Leviticus 19.18. And you might note also that Jesus included this one alongside some of the Ten Commandments when he was talking to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19.19. So when Jesus is asked which is the greatest commandment of the law, instead of picking one of the Ten Commandments, He pulls these other two commandments from elsewhere in the law and says that these are the first and the second greatest commandments. Not only that, but he says on these two depend all the law and the prophets. Some people take him to mean here that these supersede the Ten Commandments. But what we're affirming in our confession is that those two laws encompass all of the moral precepts found in the Ten Commandments. And we see evidence of this in many passages of Scripture which we'll look at in greater detail when we get to our lesson on the moral law. But we'll look at one of the more obvious ones right now, and that's Romans 13, 8 through 10. So in that passage, Paul is talking about how love is the fulfillment of the law. 
And in verse 9, he lists some of the commandments from among the last six of the ten and says of them that they are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here Paul is identifying these commandments from the latter part of the Ten Commandments with what Jesus called the second greatest commandment of the law. And a plain reading of the Ten Commandments tells us that the first four concern duty toward God and the last six concern duty toward one another. So if Paul is identifying the last six with what Jesus called the second great commandment, I think it's a perfectly logical extrapolation to identify the first four commandments then with what Jesus called the first and greatest commandment of the law. Now, let me add here that my plan in this series does not include exposition of each of the commandments themselves. Uh, If you'd like to better understand each of them and how they apply to us, you can go back and listen to Hal's sermon series from last year. And also, if you'd like further reading, I can recommend you some books that you can read on this uh, or sermon series. Uh, Then in paragraph three of the confession, we have the identification of the second category of laws, and that's the ceremonial laws. And we have a description of the various functions of these ceremonial laws, all of which we do find taught in Scripture. It then affirms that these laws were appointed only to the time of Reformation, which seemed to me to be a reference to Hebrews 9.10, although the copy of the confession that we have doesn't include that in the citations. But we'll look at the various functions of the ceremonial laws, both for the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, as well as for our own use and what we can learn about them under the New Covenant, and our proof of our not being bound to the particulars of those commands once we get to that place in the series. Then in paragraph four, we have the identification of the third category, the judicial laws, which are commonly also called civil laws. Unlike with the moral and ceremonial categories, the confession doesn't really give any examples of them or describe their function other than to say that they contain some principles of general equity and that they are for moral use. We'll look at what that means. The category includes criminal statutes and the various case laws, which while serving the moral law and the con- in the context of the nation of Israel are not necessarily universal applications of moral law, although they do help to clarify the moral law when we study them in their proper context. But they also instruct us in the governance of the church of which Israel was a type. We see this in Paul's quotation in 1 Corinthians 5.13. He cites the commandment, um, or he really just makes the statement, uh, purge the evil person from among you. We find that in several places in Deuteronomy. Now, in all of those places in Deuteronomy where we see that cited, or where we see that, that phrase used, it refers to capital punishment by stoning. But in 1 Corinthians 5, it refers to excommunication from the church. The judicial law category also includes various laws given to teach moral principles in an indirect way. The passage which is cited in the confession for this is uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 8 through 10. And that takes the commandment from Deuteronomy 25, 4, which says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And it applies it as a command to the churches to provide for their ministers. And we'll look at these and others in more detail when we get to our actual lesson on the uh, civil laws. 
So let me make something clear right now because people tend to get confused when we talk about the threefold division of the Mosaic Law. What we're not affirming is that the Mosaic Law has only partially been fulfilled or partially abolished. That would contradict Jesus' words from Matthew 5 that I quoted earlier. The whole Mosaic Law, as it functioned in the Mosaic Covenant, has been fulfilled by Christ, and no one is under it any longer. Now, those who are still in Adam and not in Christ are still under the law as a covenant of works, but it's only the moral law, not the Mosaic Law as a whole. Um, But no one is under the Mosaic Law anymore. Um, What we are affirming is that God has an eternal moral law revealed both in nature and in Scripture, and that the moral precepts expressed in the Mosaic Law and which are summarized in the Ten Commandments as well as further taught in the general equity of the case laws, reveal that eternal moral law, and so we can still look to them for moral instruction. Now then, in paragraphs 5 through 7, our confession describes various uses of the law. It doesn't give actual names to these uses, but theologians, at least as far back as Luther, have identified three uses which are commonly called the civil use, the pedagogical use, and the didactic use. Uh, Sometimes you'll find them in a different order, pedagogical, civil, and then didactic. Uh, But I think civil, pedagogical, didactic kind of makes the most logical sense. Now, even though these three uses of the law are not identified in successive paragraphs in the confession, the way that the three uh, divisions of the Mosaic law are... um, we can see that they are all affirmed in paragraphs 5 through 7 of the Confession. And these uses of the law describe the ways by which the moral law is to be used by both non-believers and by believers. And so I want to spend some time looking at those three uses. Uh, Just in brief, the civil use, not and by the way, we'll have actual lessons on these later, but just to cover them briefly, the civil use which is not to be confused with the civil laws, refers to the benefit of people's obedience to the moral law for civil society. So, for example, society is better off when people acknowledge and worship the true God and when they don't murder or steal or perjure, etc. And society suffers when they break these laws. So this use, obviously, is for unbelievers as well as for believers. Uh, The pedagogical use refers to the laws giving people a knowledge of their sinfulness and of their need for salvation. So this is useful to unbelievers to bring them to conversion or else uh, to just leave them without excuse on the day of judgment. It's also of use to us to further our conviction and humility before God um, because it reminds us of what, uh, what Jesus did for us on the cross knowing that he actually paid this penalty. The didactic use is for believers only, and it refers to the way by which the law teaches us how to live as obedient children to God. So the uses of the law, especially of the didactic use, are also affirmed very clearly in the 16th chapter of our confession, which is titled, Of Good Works. And that was, if you were here, the topic of this year's Deep South Founders Conference. So I do want to actually... uh, do at least one lesson on chapter 16 looking at that. Um, 
because yeah, the subject of good works can be a bit challenging when we're affirming that on one hand, we are saved entirely by the grace of God and not by our works, but also when we see that the scriptures are full of commands to do good works as well as threats of judgment for evil works. And even among conservative Protestant Christians, there is a lot of confusion around this. And so I think we need to flesh these, flesh these things out. So then once we've looked at all of these, there's one more thing that I want to spend some time on at the end, and that is the contrary views of Jesus and the Pharisees regarding the law. A lot of times the Pharisees are seen as people with a high view of the law, um, and we a lot of people take Jesus' confrontations with the Pharisees as sort of Jesus telling them to back away from their devotion to the law. And so the people who uh, understand these things in this way will uh, accuse those of us who insist on obedience to the moral law of being Pharisees or legalists. But an honest reading of the Gospels makes it clear that the Pharisees had falsely reinterpreted the law and adapted it to their own traditions as well as making up a lot of new laws, and that Jesus' teachings actually were perfectly in line with how the law was always meant to be understood and used. And so my plan is to spend some time toward the end of this series discussing uh, the way that they interacted on the subject of law. So then to outline the lesson plan for this series, uh, if you look at the back of your outline, here are the points that I'd like to cover. So part one, introduction, that's what we're doing now. Next, looking at the distinction between natural law and positive law. And then looking at the moral law as it's taught in both the Old and New Testaments. After that, I want to do a bit of a primer on covenant theology. And the reason for that is because, as I mentioned earlier, the positive laws throughout the Bible are given in the context of the various covenants that God has made. And so those positive laws govern those various covenants and are not applicable outside of those covenant covenants that they were given to um, apply to. And so kind of understanding how all those covenants fit together in redemptive history will help us to understand the positive laws in the Bible. Uh, after that, we'll look at the ceremonial and civil laws of the Mosaic Covenant, and then the civil and pedagogical uses of the moral law, and then the didactic use of the moral law. Um, the reason why I've combined on point five and point six is I, I haven't actually written those. I haven't gotten quite that far in writing my um, manuscripts out, but I don't expect that I'll need two whole uh, weeks for each of the, or one week each for the ceremonial laws and the civil laws and the civil use and pedagogical use. I think I can combine some of those. But for the didactic use of the moral law, I definitely think that I will need a full uh, lesson on that. And then we'll look at chapter 16 of the Confession on good works. And then we'll look at Jesus versus the Pharisees on the law. And finally, uh, just some general um, discussion of the subject of the law and the gospel and how they relate to each other. And I know that that's only 10 points and that I do have 12 weeks. I wanted to leave some space in case I need additional time to cover any topics or if any other topics come up over the course of this series that I feel like I need to add. 
So in the end, what's the purpose of this study? For one thing, it's important for our apologetics and witness, like I mentioned earlier. We have a duty to proclaim the gospel of salvation from sin, but believing the gospel starts with knowing what sin is and acknowledging that you are a sinner. And so we need to be able to define and identify sin, but we also need to be able to avoid legalism. For those of us who are already converted, we need to be able to recognize our own sin and be reminded of our inability to save ourselves and uh, consequently of our constant need for Christ and continual repentance. And we need to strive to know what God commands of us so that we can be doing those good works that God has created us for in this new birth. And finally, we need to be able to read the Bible with an understanding of how the various commandments that God has given throughout the ages fit into the broad story of redemption that is the Bible and how all of his commandments, even those which are not morally binding upon us, have things to teach us about who God is and what this work is that he has done in order to bring us out of our sinful condition and made us his children. And so with that, I'll close for today. Um, does anyone have any questions or comments? You do? No? But I gotta wait till week nine. Oh, okay. <laughs> Perfect. Because it was what does the Bible say about the law? Mm -hmm. Then you went to week nine on these. Messed me all up. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Not sure I'm gonna be here, but. Okay, well, you can always, you know, if, if you can email ahead of time so I can make sure to address it that week. Well, right. as a visitor, you really whetted my appetite. I want to stay now for the next 12 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate. I appreciate that. Um, I will. I am recording these. I did start the recording like two paragraphs into it this morning because I was not paying attention. Um, but they'll be on our website. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, anyone else? All right. Um, well then. This will not let you go. But I ask one question. Absolutely. Uh, looking at our culture today and seeing things economical that are taking place, even viewing the kind of rescue package that is uh, arriving, and then the additional double-downing and even more social action and deficit spending. And I look at this, and there are many Christians who say, Sixth Commandment, sanctity of life, we should be urgent about abortion. Seventh Commandment, sanctity of sexuality, we should be urgent about being against transgenderism and fornication. But when it comes to Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, or even uh, Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. People say, well, that's just all personal preference. Where in reality, the moral law of God is binding on our economics as well. Yeah. Or am I being too much of a theonomist, which I'm not? No, and <laughs> that's, no, that's actually a really good point because... You're speaking to a libertarian here. <laughs> <laughs> See, so actually one thing that I'm going to cover in the covenant theology lesson is two kingdom theology, but how both the common kingdom and the kingdom of Christ are subject to the moral law. And... You know, I wasn't planning on going into a lot of detail like that, but that, that is interesting. I remember talking to somebody um, 
he was a theonomist, but I do actually agree with him on this point about our monetary system and how what you know the Federal Reserve does with our monetary system is definitely uh, out of line with what's taught in about, for example, unequal weights and measures. The way that they manipulate the value of our money is, is certainly immoral. Yes, sir. I, saw, I was reading an interesting book by Gary Morris wrote a retreatment of Hazlitt's, um, basically talking about economics in one lesson. Yeah, great book. From a political perspective, and his, he was saying, I wish we had more students that said, thou shalt not steal except by a majority of those. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I think it was Ron Paul had that sticker on his desk uh, that said, don't steal the government hates competition. Um, all right. Does anyone have the time? I can't see it with the recording going. Oh, perfect. Uh, anyone else real quick before we close? Richard, will you close this, please? Sure will. Oh, Lord, we thank you for uh, John's preparation on the subject spend some more time learning of your precepts and our, uh, especially as Christians, our moral obligations uh, uh, to you and how they uh, transcend um, the uh, supposed uh, some unjust laws of man and God, that should be your standard. Lord, uh, with that, I pray that that would come to bear on our consciences and our hearts as we uh, prepare to learn to worship. Um, that we're struck by by that sword of your word uh, in order to uh, in order to comprehend uh, the message we're about to be preached to. Lord, we thank you that, uh, for the gathering of the saints today. Lord, it is your day. Uh, therefore, uh, we understand as, as as John does allude to that uh, even with this complete law that's codified in the Ten Commandments that. The fourth commandment that we should keep your day holy and sanctified uh, still stands. Uh, God, we 